Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. Richard and I were volunteering at orphanages in Juarez, Mexico, which is just down across the border from El Paso, Texas. And it was at a time that Juarez was the most dangerous city in the world. And the orphanages were just overrun with kids. Their parents had been killed or, you know, whatever had happened. There was lots and lots of kids. And at one of the orphanages, we met David. So we started the adoption process. It took about six months and we adopted him. He was then 14 years old and we brought him into the business right away. And he has his own business now. This is the Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. My guest today is Diane Kennedy. She is a certified public accountant, real estate investor, location independent entrepreneur, and the New York Times bestselling author and co-author of 14 tax and real estate books. Diane has over 35 years experience advising some of the nation's wealthiest and most prominent business owners and real estate investors, including Rich Dad, Poor Dad author Robert Kiyosaki, and she wrote one of the first books in his Rich Dad Advisors series. Diane's mission today is to disclose the money-making, tax savings, and asset protection secrets used by the super-rich and explain them to everyday Americans using real language with actionable steps. She is the co-founder of U.S. Tax Aid Services and the founder of Cashflow Accounting, both of which are completely virtual companies that she can run from anywhere in the world. And she and her husband, Richard, have traveled to over 40 countries. Diane, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to talk to you. Well, it's been amazing. You and I, just for to contextualize for people, have known each other, I want to say now, for 13 years, yeah. which is totally amazing. And also just to give geographical context for this interview today, as we're both world travelers, I am actually sitting in West Africa. I am recording this from Accra, Ghana. And you are where? On the beach in Mexico? I am. I'm in Baja, California. And on the Pacific side, there's the Sea of Cortez side. And then I'm over on the Pacific side and actually looking at the ocean right now. It's kind of foggy today. But it's, um, yeah, we're with the ocean. 
That's so awesome. Well, I am so excited for this interview, Diane, because you are someone who was into the location independence business building concept before it was cool, before it was popular, even before Tim Ferriss published The 4-Hour Workweek, which was the inspiration for so much of the digital nomad movement and the location independent entrepreneurship movement. Even before that, you were doing this. And the other thing that you did that I think is also amazing that I want to give you credit for is you made accounting cool, which is like incredible. I mean, I feel like there's all of these stereotypes about accountants and this and CPAs and this kind of stuff. And and when I first got to know you, I was literally coming to seminars and would see you introduced and coming up on stage and thousands of people cheering and applauding you like a rock star. And I feel like you just actually contributed a huge amount to making the accounting industry cool. You know, it's so interesting because what I do is primarily tax. And to me, it's just a game. And once you know the rules, then it's just position it to win. And I love that. It's, it's If you just view tax instead of being some scary, horrible thing, it's just understand it so that you win. And truly, if you set yourself up right, you can determine when and how much you pay in taxes. Given enough time and following strategies, you can do that. And so what's not to love? You know, I get excited showing people, oh, by the way, you know, you, you can save $20,000 this year in your taxes. And maybe we can even do some amendments. So that's that's what gets me excited is helping people keep more of their money so they can do more for themselves, their families, their communities, whatever their dreams are. So I want to start with a little bit of your journey and kind of just going way back. And maybe you can just kind of give the background of where you grew up and then what order did you get into these things? Did you first, were you first attracted to tax strategy and accounting? And did you go in that direction and then later become an entrepreneur? Or was entrepreneurship in your blood early on and you just decided to build a business around the tax strategy? Can you give us a little bit of a background and kind of how your trajectory came about? Sure. I actually grew up in Oregon and I cannot stand rain. And so as soon as I could, I moved to the driest place I could find, which was Reno, Nevada in the desert, went to college there. And I wanted to get into accounting simply because it was something with math. And in general, I'm good at math. And it's like, why not play to your skills? And then as I, you know, starting to graduate, I worked for the local power company. And it was interesting. They offered me a job there and it was a well-paying job. And two of the CPAs that work there took me aside, two male CPAs, and said, you know, don't take this job. You need to go to work in public accounting so you can become a CPA. As a woman, and I'll never forget this, this was back when, if you don't have initials after your name, you're going to always be the person getting coffee for meetings. And the only way to beat that is you need initials after your name. So, okay, that made sense. So I went to work for public accounting. At the time, you needed to work in public accounting for two years and pass the test in order to become a CPA. So that was the goal. And during that time, it was just really easy to see. I gravitated toward tax. I liked the research. I liked the idea of the strategy. And and actually, at the power company, I had worked in the tax department helping work on their massive tax return. So I kind of had a taste of research. And I'd learned from those guys and then went on to get a master's in taxation from Golden Gate University. So it, that was always been my focus. And 
it, after I worked a little bit in the accounting, um, I, by the way, I'm a horrible employee. I hate being an employee. I want to make my own rules and I want to make my own hours and I want to decide who I'm going to work with. So I started my own business. I bought a small little tiny practice and then grew it. And it was from that that I actually met Robert Kiyosaki in 1994. I had quickly focused in on real estate. I like the idea of becoming an expert in a niche. And so real estate tax was an area where there were a lot of people needing help. So there was a great client base and I just became an expert in real estate tax. And he had just recently sold his first business and was investing heavily in real estate and had some kind of complicated situations going on. I met him. I was living then in Reno, Nevada. He was in Phoenix, Arizona. And he and his wife, Kim, would fly up to see me and then go skiing because they like to do that in the winter. And so it was a way to uh, kind of learn this. And through that, he gave me some advice that was just really invaluable. And number one was, you know, we became friends. And I would complain about, you know, without using any names, it's like, oh, I tell the clients this all the time. I'm always giving the same advice. And I feel like the first half of every meeting is the same information. And his comment was, whenever you're upset about something, put it in a book, write a book about it. And that's what led to me writing my very first book that was part of the Rich Dad series, Loopholes of the Rich. Gosh, that came out in, I've got to think about that. It was in the year 2000. So that was 19 years ago. And then from that, it just kind of took off. I wrote additional books. I've written, I've co-authored with other people. I've had books that have been published back in the day. You had um, publishing houses. I've worked with Random House, McGraw-Hill, Warner Books. Most of these have merged into other people and they're not Wiley books. They're gone or diff different names. And then as things changed in the industry, I started doing indie publishing. And that is really my passion right now is in indie publishing, because the reality is you do your own marketing anyway. And this is a way for me to, again, control content when I give it, give it out. So that was really the start of all of this and become good at something. And then when things frustrate you or you have a great story, write it in a book. And right now I would say to people that if they've got something they're good at, start a blog. If you haven't done it already, start a blog because those articles go into books very easily over time. So it gives you ideas as things happen, write about it. And by the way, that can be a business right off the bat. And then you get a whole bunch of tax deductions. So that there you go. That's kind of how virtual has changed how you do business. Back when I started this 19 years ago, I was just starting in virtual with a website and whatnot. It was kind of new though, and not nearly as easy as it is now to do it. Well, maybe we should use that as a jumping off to talk, to start off by talking about your writing, because sure. first of all, I found you through that book in the Rich Dad Advisor series. So I read Real Estate Loopholes, which was the Rich Dad Advisor book. And then I started finding what other books had you written and started reading those. And then I looked you up and I started paying to come to your seminar events so that I could learn from you personally. And then eventually hired your company as my uh, accounting company to right. do my personal taxes as well as my companies. And so you and I have had a long relationship, but that was my sort of, if you will, customer journey to you. You and I, of course, are very good friends now, but that was basically my customer journey to you. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit in terms of your writing and the extent to which that has been a marketing avenue for your company and you know 
how significant that has been compared to other marketing initiatives that you've done? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, I've got to thank Robert Kiyosaki for helping me with that because, gee, I've got these people. Now what am I going to do with all of this? And he was the one who talked about, well, you have to have a product, a service, something that the idea is an upsell. And then from that developed an email list. Hey, come in here, get a free report, free recording, something of value that someone wants. And then once they do, they're on your list. And so then when you have special offers and new content, I I always call it, you're like feeding your list. I I do regular emails now to my group and it's, you know, new case law, specific stories on what worked and maybe a story that's cautionary tale, what didn't work. And it selects the people that are interested in that. If people aren't interested in that, they'll opt out. And that's fine. That's not your market anyway. But if you focus on providing content geared to that group, you want to eventually sell additional products and services to that's how you make money. Honestly, royalties off of books, you probably aren't going to make a fortune unless you have a lot of books. Kind of an asterisk on that, though. I've started this new project where I ran into a group uh, several months ago on Facebook, and it's 20 books to 50,000 a year. And the premise is, is if you write 20 books and you do it in a genre, a series if it's fiction, but it's something where each one leads to another one and another sale, and then follow their very easy to follow guidelines with even cover design, title, the blurbs you use on Amazon when you put it up there, how you talk about it. If you follow that with 20 books, the basically the minimum is $50,000 a year recurring sustainable income. And so I started an experiment. I'm going to try this because I just find that fascinating. It's something anybody can do. Because pretty much everybody's got a book or a series in them, and it's just a matter of writing it smartly and in line with what they're doing. The other thing that, again, I'm just going to mention Robert Kiyosaki here again, he's the one who really taught me the importance of having passive income as opposed to just active earned income. And for me, I went through some health issues and starting February 2017 and ended up not being able to work that much in my business. So my earned income basically dropped to zero. Thank goodness my husband and I had built up passive income, money that shows up without us having to work, and highly leveraged money where maybe I have some work involved, but it's not, I mean, I'm getting paid very well for my time, or usually it's if I do something, it's got multiple purposes. So I've got other things I can repackage that information I'm doing or that research. I, I do more than one thing with it. And so I've got multiple income streams that happen after that, uh, off of that thing. So those are benefits that I've seen from this. And, you know, of course, we, we know each other from real estate because Richard and I have real estate and passive income with real estate is the best. But you typically need to have some money to put down and you need to have some credit to find to be able to leverage this. And for some people, especially people starting out, that there's a limit to how much of that they can do. So I like the idea of building a business and real estate together jointly. And for the business, Earned income is great in the beginning where you're doing the work because you're going to get paid more and it's easier to sell your one-on-one services, but build up that passive or leveraged piece in that. Those are kind of the lessons that I took away from all of that and which 35 years later I'm still doing and even more so than I used to do. Right. Let me ask you just in terms of your writing 
process because you are a very, you're not only a very prolific writer, but you are actually a New York Times best-selling author. And so I want to ask you both in terms of your writing process, how do you actually write a book? What is your process start to finish for doing that? And then also as a secondary question, what makes a New York Times bestseller? What gets one of your books onto the New York Times bestseller list? Okay. The New York Times bestselling list, I'll start with that question first. It's very difficult to do right now because you basically, at the way they currently count the sales, it's very difficult to do it unless you have a big publishing house representing your book. Now, is that possible? Absolutely. You know, if you're John Grisham, you're going to get a New York Times bestseller. If you've got a lot of people behind your book, you can do that. And for a lot of people starting out, though, they end up having to put a great deal of money into marketing and PR. I did this back in the day when I had a big house behind me, which was at the time Warner Books. And today, as an indie author, I, I doubt I would do it again. But I mean, once you're a New York Times bestselling author, you can say it forever. <laughs> so that's that's great. And I have an uh, email list that I sell to. But additionally, there's people who find me through podcasts and things like that. And then there's great offers to come join our group or a community where they get free information in exchange for opting into the email list. So that's the kind of the way I grow the business because right now my focus isn't so much getting a bestseller status, although it's fairly easy to do on Amazon if you are smart in how you set that up. Um, my last book hit Amazon in bestseller status in, I think, eight categories. It was quite a few, and it surprised me. Amazon started adding me to categories because the book had really good sales that first week. Um, so that they helped me a lot with getting sales in there because they'll always back a winner. So if you come in with a good plan and it's obvious you've got sales, they're going to help you. But in general, my writing process is I'm very organized. In the writing world, there's people that are plotters or they call them pantsers, where you just write by the seat of your pants. And I'm a plotter. I plot this whole thing out. So I have a very defined process. I start off with a mind map for a book that I want to write. And I have a books. I mean, I've got books going way back. They're online journals and I have my colored pens. There's a whole theory with mind mapping when you use a color that it kind of kicks in that side of your brain that's creative. And so I mind map out the book I want to write. And then from that, create the first uh, table of contents, which is basically an outline. And then I expand on that and then I write it. I also am using voice to text as much as possible. So dragon, once I, once I start like hanging words on that skeleton of the outline, I use dragon because it just really helps my speed. And that, by the way, is a learned skill. And how do you dictate and have it come out coherent without rambling? Yeah. And you will, if you've never done that before, it's going to take a little bit to get it, but it's worth the hassle because you will write so much faster if you can do that. And then once I do that, edit, 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 um, I've got a process for getting things edited and checking for grammar. And it's more than just me doing it. I have other people who do it. And then that's that gets the book out. And I create a marketing plan around it to launch it and on to the next book. So that's kind of the plan for how I do the writing process. And I'm currently in a program that because my life wasn't busy enough, that is, we've done a challenge to write a million words in 365 days. 
So I'm in a group that's doing that now. And there's lots of accountability around that, which is great. And it's helping me because if I can write a million words, that's like 20 books, well, 20, 50,000 word books. So that's a lot. And that would just be a year to get that done. So we'll see how I do on that. Wow. Now, can you talk a little bit about the indie marketing process, indie publishing, and then your marketing plans that you do around that? Why do you choose independent publishing as opposed to using a major publisher like you used to? And then what tips do you have if somebody wanted to go that route for doing a marketing launch of a book? Right. The um, The main reason is, is that with my last few books that were with publishing houses, I discovered that they have zero budget for marketing and just, no, I mean, they don't have anybody to advise you. They don't have anybody doing it unless you are already a big, big name and they know it's going to be a blockbuster, but it's up to you as the writer to market your own book. And in exchange, you literally get cents per book as a royalty. Whereas if you publish yourself and Amazon has made that very easy to do, if you, but if you publish your, your book yourself, you get to keep a lion's share of the money. Amazon takes something for printing the book and shipping it out or for uh, selling Kindle. They take very a much lower amount if you're doing e-publication. But the idea is, is that you keep more of the money and face it, you're doing most of the work anyway. The advantage the print publisher gets you is they have the ties to get you into bookstores. But if you look at the market trends, we're seeing that people are buying through Amazon more than they are through bookstores. And there's bookstores closing right and left. So personally, I think that that's kind of a dying strategy using the big publishers. And we're in a bit of the sh- a shakeup now in the market. Kind of as far as the indie publishing, this group is just amazing. I'd say go to Facebook and join the group, 20 books to 50K. And it has a lot of free advice and the tips they give every day. And there's a huge you know, welcome to the group when you sign up with lots and lots of links or you can just buy the book he wrote, which I think on Kindle is like seven or eight bucks. And it's well worth the money on how to be a successful indie writer. Uh, people have done it. I mean, one lady I know quit her job last fall, has already gotten her million words by June 30th, which was amazing, and written a bunch of books, got, I mean, literally thousands of five-star reviews, and replaced her income with no problem and more. So it's very possible. You just have to put the time in and maybe learn a few things about or following their strategy for marketing. And can you talk a little bit now as well about the entrepreneurial journey from there, right? So you had that big breakthrough and you were able to get that first book into the Robert Kiyosaki Rich Dad Advisor series and really get a lot of publicity and a lot of attention through that. But from there, as you continue to build and scale your business, can you talk about that process of building and scaling and ultimately taking your business to a location-independent infrastructure? Sure. Almost from the beginning, I like spending a great deal of time at home working. Um, I was not a person who needed to go to the office to work. In fact, I preferred the quiet of my office, my home office, so I could concentrate and be more creative. And so early on, I was working from home quite a bit of the time. And then the internet just made that all so much easier where we could just 
check in. In 2007, actually, although we were quite virtual by that point, at 2007, it just closed down the, the bricks and mortar and we went completely virtual. And once you're virtual, you can work anywhere there's internet. And we found CPAs to work with us that would be independent contractors. And I found this niche of CPAs that were all older, that had more experience, and they didn't want to deal with getting dressed up and going downtown to the high rise. They liked the independence of being wherever they want to be. And I mean, in the last few years, we've had CPAs spend six months in China. One went uh, down through South America, and it didn't matter. As long as there was internet and they had their laptop, they could keep working. So we've attracted those kinds of CPAs to us because they might not know marketing, but they've got the experience that they can definitely help our clients. So I found those guys, we worked out deals, and that's how we built this practice of CPAs that are all virtual. And that that becomes part of my leveraged income that we have. And then I created information products, books, and home study courses. I have a coaching program I do twice a month that's group coaching that's more affordable than for people that don't want to go the route of hiring us as their CPA or paying for a consultation. And by the way, those are all recorded, then packaged later and sold as information products. So the idea is, is that everything I'm doing now is primarily geared toward tax, asset protection for the business owner and the real estate investor. That would be my other tip I would give to anybody thinking about doing this, taking their business and doing it all online. Get niched as as much as you can, because the better you are as an expert in a particular niche, the more that you can kind of dictate how you're going to work. I mean, we get people still that'll say, hey, I just want to have a CPA can show up whenever I want, put my feet on their desk and sit around and talk. It's like, yeah, we're not that person because the reality is you can't bill for that time. And if we're looking at maximizing our effort and a return, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, we can go out and have coffee and, you know, have a great time chatting, but when I'm working, I'm working. And this isn't for everybody, but you will find those right people to work with who appreciate your model and who want that for themselves. And once you find that, then you're building out the client base that appreciates your expertise And you appreciate how they work with you. It's amazing because a CPA firm would not be something that people would have considered a a traditionally virtual business in the same way that Maverick Investor Group as a licensed real estate brokerage that helps people buy investment properties is not something people would consider a traditionally virtual business. And so I can remember back when I hired uh, your company to do our taxes and our company taxes and all of that and had been working with you for years. And I would say to people, oh yeah, I've never met my CPA, you know, the person from your company that was actually doing our taxes that we were working with. I said, yeah, I've, I've never met my CPA in person after years. I mean, it's now been, I don't know how many years uh, and right. still never met in person. But I was like, why would I need to meet my CPA in person? You know, And it was, it, right. it was just such a paradigm shift, but I feel like you were such a pioneer in doing that so many years ago and having the vision to that, you know, whatever it is that you do for your business, there are ways and paths to create a virtual infrastructure for that so that you and your staff can have the lifestyle freedoms that you want. Right. Yeah. And just, it's interesting because using your company as a bit of an example, 
if you had a real estate company where you sold homes that people wanted to get the feel for what they're going to live in and you know things that are important to the color of the wallpaper and the curtains that doesn't work virtually but what you're selling is cash flow and return and the reality is that doesn't matter where it is or what it's doing the well it does matter where it is as long as you've got a place that's a rental pool it's all about the numbers and I, that that's a great example of becoming very niched and then finding the people that want that sp- particular skill set. And you know, that, that makes sense. I mean, you're, you're definitely a company that I frequently refer people to who are looking for, I just want a good return. I don't have time to go find a property. Great. These guys have got pro- people in place providing a return. It's all about the numbers. Right. And even some of your staff CPAs have been buying their rental properties through us, I which know. has been an awesome, an awesome sort of, you know, <laughs> kind of back and forth. They do our taxes, they buy their properties through us and uh and it works out well. Yeah. Let's let's go into that actually a little bit deeper, Diane. For for listeners that aren't, you know, fully familiar with all of the tax advantages of buying and holding rental properties, can you talk a little bit about that? Why do you personally invest in real estate and choose to work with real estate investor clients and maybe just explain a little bit about what those tax benefits are? Okay. If you are a real estate professional under the definition of the IRS, and we'll talk about that in just a second, but let's say you are, you don't ever have to pay taxes, period. If you do either one, you don't own enough real estate or two, you or more likely your tax advisor isn't familiar with all of the legal tax loopholes you can take with real estate. Now, there was a bunch of caveats in there. One is, is if you're a real estate professional, and that is a very specific definition that the IRS has. And for some people, like let's say a couple, maybe you have one spouse who has a business that's bringing in income and the other spouse is the one running the real estate. That often is the ideal situation because in order to be a real estate professional, you need to have at least 750 hours a year of real estate activities and more hours than any other trade or business. So if you've got a full-time job and you're single, it's going to be really hard to qualify for that because you know, you're working 40 hours a week and then you'd have to have 41 plus of real estate. That's, those are long weeks. That's test number one. It, test number two, and this can be combined if you're married, that you have to have what's called material participation. And that changes, that definition changes based on whether you have a property manager or not, but it basically has to do with you. how many hours are you spending on that particular property. The third one is, is that each property has to qualify individually unless you make an election to aggregate those. So that's just something that your tax advisor can help you decide whether it makes sense to do that or not. Um, those are, if you do those things, then you can take an unlimited tax loss against your other income. Now, the benefit of that is, I mean, because somebody listening to this is like, I'm not going to buy real estate to lose money. That would be stupid. Exactly. But we're not talking about direct expenses. Direct expenses are those directly involved with that particular property. So it would be the mortgage interest, the property tax, the utilities, if you've got those repairs. Now, what is it involved with that property? That's a direct expense. You always take those deductions and hopefully at the end of it, you still got income because that reflects how much your cash flow is. The next one is indirect expenses. Those are expenses that have to do with being in the business of owning real estate. So for example, let's say you have 10 properties and you buy a computer, you have a home office, you have an internet service provider, you have a cell phone, you know, all the things that go into being a smart manager of your property. 
Well, those are indirect expenses. They're not directly related to any property, but they're still important and they're still deductible. Those are indirect expenses. Always take those deductions. Now, at that point, you may not be having any income left. It depends on how big those other expenses are. And the secret often to that is if you've got expenses that are already you're paying money for, you know, personal expenses, you're looking for how can I legally legitimately make this a deduction for my real estate. And the third one, though, and this is the real benefit that real estate has, is something I call a phantom expense. That's depreciation. Now, depreciation, you can stop, you can start, you can catch up, you can suspend, you can take on one property and not the other. In other words, you can get very strategic with phantom expenses. And in this case, what we would do if you're a real estate professional, we want to maximize all your phantom expenses. So we create a tax loss. That tax loss can go to offset your other income, regardless of the source, as long as you're a real estate professional. And so that's the secret. That's how this is working, where, gee, I don't have enough write-off. Well, then go buy some more real estate. And by the way, you're going to make more money because you got to buy smart. And so you've got more cash flow that creates more depreciation and you can use it to offset your other income. So that's in a nutshell why this makes so much sense. If with real estate, you've got cash flow. Again, if you bought properly, uh, you've got the potential for appreciation, maybe active appreciation where you've done something to improve the value of the property or passive, it just, you know, values are going up. And so you get to take part in that. And then third, those tax benefits that you only get with real estate. That can be a great strategy for anyone who's got real estate and other income that they want to shelter. Now, if somebody cannot qualify as a real estate professional, like you said, they're single and working 40 hours a week and all that kind of stuff, which of those real estate tax benefits can they still take part in? You know, the biggest thing is then in their case, if their income is over $150,000 a year, adjusted gross income, they're not going to get any of the real estate losses we might create. So what I would do is look for getting that income, that taxable income for the real estate to zero. There's no sense to create an extra loss that then becomes a suspended loss. Now you don't lose it. It carries forward, but it, Actually, it's kind of tricky because what it ends up doing is you have to recapture depreciation when you sell. And that means that you pay less in capital gains tax and more in this depreciation recapture, which is a higher tax rate. So the key here is you just want to get to zero. Now, the benefit of that is you've got something that's giving you cash flow and you don't pay tax on it, plus the possibility of appreciation. And if you've got appreciation, you can always refinance and pull some cash out. So those become strategies for using this the asset to create more cash for more investments without having to sell it. You know, contrast that with buying a stock. You might get dividends, which are fully taxable. And then you, in order to get that cash flow, you've got to sell the stock. You don't have to sell the house to free up cash. You know, that still, I think, is a great strategy for people with real estate. And who knows, down the line, you might retire and then you take advantage of all of these other tax benefits with real estate. Right. And so just to be clear for folks, if this is sort of their first exposure to some of these tax benefits, even if they can't qualify as a real estate professional and they make over $150,000 a year, 
they can still take the depreciation phantom loss and use that against what would otherwise be taxable income from that piece of real estate, right? So Correct. if their cash flow that they're getting into their pocket every month, the net positive cash flow that comes into their pocket every month that would otherwise be taxable, then even if they're not a real estate professional, no matter how much money they make, they can still depreciate the property, take the phantom loss, even if the property is going up in value, and then use that as a write-off so they don't have to pay tax on their positive returns from the property, right? Correct. And just kind of a little asterisk, it doesn't have to be just that property. I have clients sometimes that bought property years ago and it's basically free and clear. And at that point, when you don't have the mortgage interest, it sometimes can be hard to get that property down to zero. So if they have another property they've bought more recently that has more depreciation, that has more expense, and it creates a loss, they can use the loss on that property against another real estate passive income. So you can put all your properties together and that's fine. You can offset then. It's just that that loss can't offset your earned income or your interest or dividends. So it still works though to offset passive. Right. Okay. So, and then just to give folks sort of an example, you're allowed to depreciate your residential investment property over 27 and a half years. So just for an easy number, let's say if you had a property that was worth $350,000 and you, you're not allowed to depreciate the land, right? So you have to break that out. But if your structure was worth $275,000, you can depreciate that over 27 and a half years. So it's a $10,000 loss per year on paper, even if it's going up in value, that you can then take against $10,000 of real estate gains. Is that right? Correct. Now, you can actually even accelerate your depreciation, which we now are talking advanced strategies, by doing something called a cost segregation study. And what that does is it breaks out the personal property elements of your property. So let's say you have a single family home. And in that, there are certain per- personal property elements. For example, the HVAC system, the floor covering, the refrigerator, garbage disposal. You know, there's a number of things like that. Those don't have to be depreciated over 27 and a half years. They can be depreciated over five, seven, in some cases, 15 years. And so by doing this study, you break out from that 275000 for example, how much value is to these separate items And then you can accelerate your depreciation because the life is shorter on those particular ones. Again, that's an advanced strategy. So make sure you're working with somebody who understands how to take advantage of that tax rate changes. Right. And then if somebody does make less than $150,000 a year at their regular job, then if they have additional overflow depreciation after they write off all their real estate gains, then they can apply some of that to offset some of their earned income if it's under 150,000 is that right? Correct. Well, it's actually under 100,000 you can take a deduction for up to $25,000 of real estate losses like that. And then between 100,000 and 150,000 the amount you can take phases out. Till when you reach that 150 you can't take anything. So, yes, you'll get some I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single-family homes, 
sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, the physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Thing, but until you know exactly where your income is going to be, you won't know exactly how much it is. Right. And now you mentioned depreciation recapture when you sell, but there's also a provision called the 1031 exchange. Can you explain what that right. is and how that works? Yeah. Another great thing. The 1031 exchange is, I mean, the best way I can say is like a monopoly. When you had four greenhouses and you changed it for one red hotel, that's a 1031 exchange. You did that and nobody paid taxes. And by the way, that's real life. So if you have a property and you sell it, there's a bunch of gain and you don't want to pay tax right now, you can buy another property within certain specifications and roll your gain into that next property. Yeah, and that means that it doesn't mean that you'll never pay tax on it, but you've delayed the time when you have to pay it. Now, it's possible that you just keep rolling forever until your heirs inherit it, and then they inherit it at a higher value, and nobody ever pays taxes. So set up correctly, you might be able to defer that tax forever for your family. Some of the rules, though, I mean, you absolutely need to plan this one in advance because if the money touches your hand, for example, let's say you sell, you've got the money, you get the escrow check and they say, you know, I think I'll buy another property and do a 1031. Too late. It's touched your hands. It needs to stay with a, an accommodator, some a third party who's going to hold that money and they then buy the next property in your name. You have 45 days to identify what possible property it might be and 180 days to actually close on that next property. And the property needs to be for at least the sales amount of the property you just sold. It could be more, but if it's less, you're going to have some amount that's going to be taxable on that. Right. And I love, Diane, how you have what you talked about in terms of creating a niche and creating a ideal client avatar. And you have really specialized in trying to work with real estate investor, professional real estate investor clients, entrepreneurs, and business owners. Can you talk a little bit about how and why you demarcated that niche and then built your business around that? Well, I personally do both of those things. And I think there's a certain amount of, hey, I want to learn all I can because it helps me too. And that's basically building businesses. And with the advent of online, I especially like working with online folks because it online, I mean, we can start a business today for an online business owner and immediately get deductions and start taking advantage of that. It's the fastest way I know to get a business going. And the whole key to having a business is getting it going. So it has more flexibility. The challenge with W-2 wage earners of where they don't have that business or real estate is there's not a lot of strategy. And every time we get these tax law changes, you know, the, the, the idea was, you know, a lot of people complained that the Trump tax plan, the 2017 Tax Cuts and Job Act, was only for the rich. 
And the irony is, it's not only for the rich, it's only for business owners and real estate investors. It just happens to be business owners and real estate investors are more likely to be rich. So I find that just fascinating as far as, okay, you're working then with people that are upwardly mobile, who are interested in improving their their own personal life, the life of their family. Often they're people who are very driven by social causes, which is important to me as well. So it's a fun group to work with. It's inspiring to me. I learn from my clients all the time. That's why I picked that. And it's turned out to be something great. I mean, personally, I'm just waiting to see what happens to some of these franchise tax preparers because it's become so easy to do a tax return if you're just a W-2 wage earner. And that's because there's very few deductions left. And it, it, you know, the old joke of how much do you make, send it in. It's like, well, guess what? That's your one page tax return now. It just doesn't have a lot that's deductible. So people can do it themselves. And so there isn't a market for that group anymore. You, you need to specialize into something where people are going to value your expertise. That's to me, my belief in businesses. Right. And I really like what you do and what your focus is, Diane, in terms of helping regular people take advantage of very complicated tax laws that people think, you know, that the wealthy have always taken advantage of, but that regular people can also take advantage of them too, if they understand it. So we just talked through a lot of the real estate stuff, which is applicable to anyone that buys real estate. And that's a very accessible thing to do, right? So most of the turnkey rental properties through Maverick Investor Group still today in 2019, you know, are a hundred thousand US dollars to 150,000 US dollars, you know, in the markets that we're dealing with, right? We're not in San Francisco and Manhattan, right? And so if you qualify for a mortgage and you're only putting 20% down, Twenty thousand to thirty thousand dollars is all you need to buy and hold a rental property for the long term, and so that's a very accessible price point for a lot of people. Now they're a real estate investor. Now they get to start to take these these other tax benefits, and I like the way that you're doing something similar in terms of entrepreneurship and in terms of starting businesses. And you know, a lot of people, even if they are still working at their job, just like they can buy real estate as an investment, they can also start a business and you know start that side hustle and then try to maybe grow that into a full-time thing if they want. But can you talk a little bit about the tax benefits available as soon as someone starts a business? What can they do now? Well, I've got a story on that. And it was a person who was very involved in his own business. And you know, I did I was giving a seminar and where do you spend most of your money, your personal expenses? And he jumped right up and said, shoes. My wife buys shoes. You know, when we go on a trip, she has a suitcase just for her shoes. She buys lots and lots of shoes. And it was it was funny and he got a laugh, but that was true. So because I knew he knew a little bit about programming, he knew WordPress, he knew how to put up a blog, I challenged him. Okay, she is an absolute expert on shoe fashion. So let's give her a blog on shoes. And she can take pictures of what shoe she's bought and what she would wear with it and how much it costs, and then provide a link for somebody to buy it. And then she gets an affiliate referral income. And by the way, that shoe is now a tax deduction because overnight he was able to throw up a WordPress blog and she began blogging about shoes and got a following from it. I mean, my goodness, if you watch people on YouTube, like the makeup people that'll get you know, hundreds of thousands of viewers that are making a lot of money. This is a business. And if it's something that you really like and you care about, then why not 
blog about it or do a YouTube video, and then you get a following, you make money off of the advertisement and affiliate income, and you've got a write-off. And the, the, the cool thing is, is that you've got a write-off immediately. Even if you end up, you put up your links and nobody buys for the first couple of months because they're just discovering, you still get the write-off. Because in a business, you don't have those same limitations on losses going against other income. They can be used. You know, generally at some point you need to show a profit motive and actually show profit. But for several years at least, you can run losses in that business, taking those write-offs for the things that you already are spending money on. So that's one of the biggest benefits I've got for, for doing that. Um, another big one, and we've talked a little bit about this before we got started, was about the idea of working and living in a foreign country. The easiest way I know to do that is with an online business. And then once you do, you've got some great opportunity for legally not paying any U.S. taxes, and that's through the foreign earned income exclusion. So those become ways to make money without, because it doesn't have what we call nexus, which is a connection to a geographic area without nexus. So you end up paying little to no taxes. Can you talk a little bit more about that? There's definitely a lot of location independent entrepreneurs and digital nomads or aspiring digital nomads that either live outside the US or are itinerant and, and traveling around the world and so forth. So can you talk about what are the benefits of the foreign earned income exclusion and what does it take to qualify for those? Okay. So the benefit is, is that, gosh, I didn't look this up before. I believe it's 109,000 now can be excluded of income. So you can make $109,000 if I've got that number right. And it's, you don't pay any U.S. tax on it. Now it's a foreign earned income. So that's probably the first di difference we've got to make there is a distinction. It's got to be money that you actually make. If it's money you're making from your rentals, well, we've already talked about those strategies. We've got that covered. But even if you had income, it can't be covered. It um, This is earned income money you're making. So with that, basically, you if you qualify, then you're not going to pay tax on that amount. A couple of things besides being earned income. The other is that you need to have either physical presence or bona fide residence outside the U.S. Physical presence means that you are gone for 335 days out of 365 days. By the way, that doesn't have to be from January 1st to December 31st. It's just 365 consecutive days. So in other words, you're only in the U.S. for 30 days out of that time period. That's physical presence. It's a very objective test because you just have a diary and you can show where you've been. Uh, the other one, the bona fide residence, is a little more subjective. And in that particular case, you're looking to see, do you have a closer tie to another country than you do the U.S.? Now, we still have a U.S. address. We still have U.S. property. But we have a closer tie to Baja California. Uh, we own property here, and we, we actually have some rentals and other things here as well. But this is where we spend most of our time. And we have a car licensed here. We, you know, we have permanent residence here and you know, visas here. And so we're legally in the country, big deal that for that too. But that gives us that bona fide residence. And with that, you can actually be, we could be back in the U.S. for up to 120 days. Although I recommend not pushing that number, maybe don't go over 100. But still, you can be in the U.S. for a lot longer. I'm just going to say a little asterisk here. You do need to be careful with that because 
the U.S. isn't always the most expensive country to have residents in. And I've seen people kind of jump from the fire to the frying pan or however that goes, frying pan to the fire. Um, but the fact is, is that they say, okay, I'm in this country now. Yay. I don't have to pay U.S. tax. And it's like, yeah, but you're in a country that has a higher tax. So just be careful when you start that strategy that you're not going to create an additional problem. And to do that, you need to understand the tax laws of the country that you're in. Sometimes you can handle that just by having a foreign company outside, like an offshore company set up. So there's different strategies. You just need to really know what you're working with. So that's the first part of this. When you qualify, you get that 109, I think it's 109,500 that's going to be excluded. Now, the second part of that is you also get a housing allowance, and that means that it's actually a, just a deduction right off the top. So if you make more than 109000 let's say you make 120000 you have still got some extra income you're going to pay tax on, but your exclusion might be able to just knock that back down. The amount of your exclusion is a formula, and the formula is based on how much earned income you have and what country you're living in and what area you're living in. And, and based on those two amounts, it'll tell you how much it is. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to say the people that I've seen use this, it's not uncommon to be able to take a deduction for maybe about 15000 a year. So that's just kind of a rough number based on that formula, what that is. So you can see where it gets to the point where, gee, we're, we're almost to the point where we're not going to pay tax at all. If your other income all happens to be real estate, well, Grace, you're sheltering it through the first strategy. And if the second is earned, then you just shelter it through the second strategy. So again, it depends on the country you're in. Just be careful with that. And then you need to make sure that it's earned income and that you have either physical presence or you're a bona fide resident. Now, if you're not actually generating the income from the country you're residing in. You're just, let's say, generating it in the U.S. Like, let's say you have a U.S.-based LLC in Nevada or Wyoming or something, and you're generating income into your U.S.-based LLC, but you personally are just traveling around the world, right? Then your tax obligation would be that if you're able to make, let's say, the $109,000 into your U.S. LLC, but you're physically residing outside of the U.S., then you, you would have no tax obligation anywhere on the 109. Is that how it works? Um, well, it depends on what we now we have to look at that concept of nexus, which means connection. So if I'm working for, I own a company that's a bricks and mortar, for example, people come into my store and buy things. That clearly has nexus inside the U.S. and whatever state you're in, too. You've got state income tax most likely as well. That is not going to be excludable. If you have something where people are buying and selling that's absolutely tied to the U.S., then you've got U.S. nexus and you're not going to be able to avoid it. In the case of the work I do, which is I'm writing books, I'm selling books, I'm giving advice, we're preparing tax returns, I do that all virtually. So I don't have that U.S. basis. Even though I have U.S.-based clients, the work is done on my computer, wherever I am. So that then is a way to not have that nexus. It depends on the particular circumstances of how you're making that income. Right. So consult your CPA, but the concept and the potential of the tax benefit is that you, if you set it up and you structure it right and you have a qualified you know, business situation and all that, 
that you could make up to $109,000 and not have to pay tax on it in the US or anywhere else if you qualify for that benefit. Correct. Awesome. All right, Diane, I want to also talk to you a little bit about your travels and your travel experience. And let me just start off by asking you a very general question about what does travel mean to you? What do you get out of it? Why do you travel internationally? Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, it, I love history. I love seeing other people. And for me, I, I never was one who liked going on the tours. Okay, we're going to see 10 cities in five days kind of thing. I liked being able to go someplace and stay for a while. And you get to know other people. And I just love that experience of being, you know, different food, different customs, different people, kind of making friends the world around. And um, when I met my husband, he'd had a career in microelectronics and did a lot of work in Southeast Asia. So he was extremely familiar with parts of the, the world that I wasn't. And so it was exciting for us to go to these places. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. I want to also ask you a couple questions about your personal productivity habits. You are one of the most productive people I know in terms of your output, both in terms of entrepreneurship and in terms of writing books and all that kind of stuff. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, do you have morning routines? How do you structure your day? And what tips or habits do you practice to be as productive as you are? Well, I'm, I'm a big one on writing stuff down and what do I need to do? I have a line journal that I keep and the right side of it is what I want to get done that day. And the left-hand side are notes I make throughout the day. And I keep those forever. I've got stacks of these journals. Um, it becomes really good reference for me. And part of that is I talk to people, I talk to clients and I might make a note that never, I want to make sure it gets in their file and I don't have time to do it at the moment, but it's written down. And then the other is on the right right hand side is I'm earmarking what this day is and what I want to get done that day. So that that's helpful. And you know, often I my list is way too long on Monday, and by Friday it's like, oh, I'm just gonna take the day off. So it's it's just kind of how that works. Awesome. And do you have any like morning routines or any like rituals that you do every single day that are consistent or that keep you grounded and keep you focused or things of that nature? You know, it's, it's interesting because I went through this health stuff is I do yoga almost every day. And I usually do that early afternoon because for me, I'm a morning person. I drink my coffee, get a, get some water and then, you know, sports bottle full of water. And then I'm going to sit down and go to work because that's my best time. And then I take a break later and I always make sure I have that time for the yoga to stretch and to, you know, kind of keep myself healthy. And also, you know, after you've been sitting for a while, you need to have that moving around period. So I, I'm more like get to work in the morning and then do the rest of it. And then at night, um, I don't really watch TV. My husband and I read listen to music. And so that's how we keep up on all the things. And we talk about trends and what's going on and that type of thing. Awesome. I also want to ask you about stress management in general, and also how you deal with business problems and setbacks when they occur. You know, there's this concept of the entrepreneurial roller coaster that pretty much every business owner is intimately familiar with. And right. so I was wondering if you can just talk or, or share any setbacks that you've had along your journey and then how you approach and deal with a business problem and how you also personally just sort of manage stress when you're in high stress situations. 
You know, it's interesting. Um, I, I think the uh, kind of the, the challenges, I mean, 2008, 2009, we were heavily invested in real estate. And of course that hit us like a lot of people. And I've, I've had a couple of business partnerships that didn't work out that were painful. And it became a case of, okay, this is where we are. What do we need to do? My approach is always to be very strategic and to, um, just the whole concept of emotional intelligence to me is managing that emotional reaction to things. Because I find that the more emotionally become, the you know, emotion goes up, intelligence goes down. Your ability to think through problems isn't there when you get emotional. So for me, it's, okay, you know, I'm not going to say I don't have these feelings, but I'm not going to deal with those now. Right now is where am I now? Where do I want to be? What am I going to do? And then times where it's been hard, it was kind of almost a mantra I had is, well, it's not getting worse. We're discovering more things that are wrong and that we need to fix and we move forward. But, you know, or if something bad happened, it was that was then, this is now. And so I think it helps having those kind of mantras around you. But for me, I've always been this person who's very good in a crisis. I can, okay, I'm going to put that aside and worry about all that feeling later. What do I need to do now? I don't know what that is other than it's just a skill I developed over time. I'm also curious, Diane, to know a little bit about your sort of management style, your leadership style, and how you would characterize that in terms of leading the teams that you've built and put together over the years. Okay. Frankly, I suck at it. So I have my <laughs> husband do that. But what we do is with our CPAs is um, I love the technical stuff. And um, I'm kind of famous for saying, I don't say this too often, but I will now, uh, you know, if everybody just do their job, I wouldn't have to manage anybody. <laughs> it's like, so probably not the best thing to tell your team. That's why my husband does this. But um, I, I like the, the detail and the strategies. So we have regular calls and we talk through client questions and, you know, hey, here's a new strategy. This is how we can use it. This is when it works, this is when it doesn't. And these things came up with a particular client. What do you recommend? We do group calls because we all learn from each other on that. And that's very popular with the CPAs. They like that ability of, because we're all working basically from home and sometimes in isolation and we don't have other people that are professionals to talk about these things. So this is a way for us to have that sounding board amongst each other. I'm also curious, Diane, if you can share this about working together and doing business partnerships with your spouse and, you know, because I feel like mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that are averse to, you know, quote unquote, doing business with friends and family or, you know, things like that. But also, uh, you know, particularly with a spouse, when, you know, you live together and you spend your free time together and, you know, that kind of stuff. And then also doing business together. Can you share a little bit about, you know, how you and Richard have made that work? Yeah, it's interesting. We have this kind of saying it's on a one to 10. How important is this? to you. So the idea is, is that we just generally, it's like, there's times when he really wants something and I don't care. And, you know, it's an eight for him and it's a two for me. So we'll just do it your way. Cause it doesn't matter. And, but the other thing in business early on, I remember having lunch with someone who was kind of a grizzly business owner and been through it all. And he said, what some of the best advice I got with my business is somebody had told him, make sure whenever you have a meeting that the business has a seat at the table. And we, we actually say that now. My son will say it. We say it frequently. What would the business say? So maybe we're not agreeing on some path or some decision. And then it's like, stop, 
what would the business say about this? And it's interesting because if you can get yourself out of your own head and whatever is kind of running you emotionally about this and just think about what would the business say? I don't know that we ever disagree on what the business would say. And then if it's a business decision, it's kind of like, okay, well, the business just spoke and it's a business decision, unless there's, you're really, you know, personally adverse to something because you have some ethical considerations or something, which I think the business would as well. But the idea is, is that you take a moment and then look at this objectively from the eyes of your business. That helps a lot. Um, we don't share space. We're on op. We have offices on opposite sides of the house. I mean, I can't hear him even, and we're off quite a ways away from each other. That's also a secret because he's kind of a messy person in his office. I'm not, and it would drive me insane. So it's you, you find ways to work with each other. I'm also curious about you know parenting techniques and and the extent to you know bring kids into the business or not you know and, and to the extent to which you do financial and entrepreneurial education as well as just your general you know approach to parenting and raising amazing you know raising an amazing kid I'd love for your take on that. Well, David, we met David. Richard and I were volunteering at orphanages in Juarez, Mexico, which is just down across the border from El Paso, Texas. And it was at a time that Juarez was the most dangerous city in the world. And the orphanages were just overrun with kids. Their parents had been killed or, you know, whatever had happened. There was lots and lots of kids. And at one of the orphanages, we met David. And so we started the adoption process. It took about six months and we adopted him he was then 14 years old. So the first thing I would say is, oh my gosh, holy shnikes, adopting a teenager. That was an experience. And, um, but early on, he needed to be homeschooled. He needed certain things because he was very, very bright, but not up to, you know, going to regular classes in the U S. And so there was a lot of things we had to do differently in the beginning. And, you know, we just found out, found his niches for him, what he excelled at. And then it was a case of, okay, we're going to get through this. And we brought him into the business right away. Now he has his own business. Now he has food trucks and he just, I think has opened a restaurant or is about to, I don't know if he's done a soft opening yet or not, but he went on to study culinary arts and he loves to cook. And so he has these food trucks. And so that, you know, he's completely away from the whole accounting realm and whatnot. But it's interesting because he attributes a lot to working with us in the business because he will be, he'll also say, what does the business say? This is a common thing we say in our, in our household. And so he says that about his business too, when he's got a decision to make, what does the business say? So he learned a lot of the habits, although I certainly didn't teach him to cook. I, I mean, I like to cook, but he's way, way, way better than me. So, you know, you find your skills and then you can kind of plug them into basic businesses. And that's what he's doing. That's awesome. That's amazing advice. All right, Diane, at this point, are you ready for the lightning round? You betcha. Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that has really influenced you over the years that you would recommend to people? Um, and now this is going to be surprising, I think, to people, but I loved The Worldly Philosophers. And it has to do with economics and as opposed like social economics and the impact on society. The new version is chapter 11. And that is like mind blowing because it talks about how economic theory has changed. 
and what that means for the future of societies. I find that fascinating because this is what we all work against is this economic and because I'm in the financial realm. And so this is what we're dealing with. This is the playing ground for us now. Awesome. What is one app or productivity tool that you're currently using that you would recommend? Okay. As a CPA, I wish everyone would get a scanner app on their mobile phone. And the reason is because you frequently run into things you need to have a copy of, or you sign a document, and then you're either running around trying to find somebody to scan it for you, especially if you're mobile and you you know don't have an office with a scanner. So you do that. And then what happens invariably is people take a picture with their phone and the quality is never good, but you can download scanner apps on your phone and then you scan it and it looks exactly like a scanned copy. The quality is the same. Definitely get one of those. Awesome. What is one podcast that you listen to or blog that you read or YouTube channel that you consume regularly, some type of content medium that you would recommend to people? You know, that's interesting. Uh, The things I'm reading now are very specific to what I want to know. I mean, I've had these health considerations, so there's a health one I follow all the time. The uh, the writing one, you know, if anybody's interested in that, I strongly recommend you join the Facebook group, 20 books to 50K. And that's something that I'm always getting marketing tips on books. And even if you don't jump into this challenge, it, it's got great ideas for even cover design and the font you use, how that can affect your sales. All right. If you could have dinner with anybody that's currently living today who you've never met, could be celebrity, author, business owner, public figure, you know, rock star, whomever, who would you choose and why? Neil Gaiman. And I'm just fascinated with what he's been able to create. He's the one who wrote American Gods. Uh, He wrote Lucifer. He wrote, oh, what was the other one? Good Omens. The, the reason I mentioned those three is they've all been turned into series and he's directing them and the series are, if anything, better than the books. So I, I'm just fascinated with how on earth he's able to do all he's doing and where do all these crazy ideas come from? I, I just, I'm just fascinated with the guy. Every interview I see with him, it's like, gee, I'd love to talk to him. That's a really good pick. All right. Last two lightning round questions are about travel. The first one is, what are your top three favorite travel destinations that you've ever been to that you'd most recommend people check out? If you haven't been to Norway, go to Norway. That was such a surprise. I went there for work and then we extended into a longer just vacation to see Norway. Oslo, if you don't do anything but Oslo, it's wonderful. But if you go further north up into the country, wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, it's clean, it's safe, it's expensive, so be aware of that. But I love Norway, so that's number one. Let's see. There's some place, I mean, I live at a place I love, Baja, California. Just get in a car and drive from Tijuana to Cabos at the end. It's a thousand kilometers, and it, it's just amazing. You're through the desert. You could go both, both sides, the east and the west, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful drive. Um, let's see. Third, I'm going to pick... Boy, this is hard. You know, it's crazy. I'm going to say Taipei, Taiwan, just because the food was so good. But um, I, I've had some really interesting adventures. Oh, I've got another one. It's the fourth one. The Upper Hunter Valley in Australia. We had great fun there. It's a wine country in Australia. So there you go. There's four. Awesome. A bonus one. I love it. All right. Last question. What are your top three bucket list 
destinations, places that you've never been that are the highest on your list right now? You know, I've got a little bit of mobility issues, so I'm, I'm kind of tempering on what's possible. But I've never been to Ireland. And, you know, I'm Kennedy. My husband's Cooley. We need to go to Ireland because that's, you know, our last names are Irish. So neither of us have been. And so that's that's on there. I would really like to go to Singapore. I, and I've just known a lot of people who absolutely love it. The food is phenomenal and it just seems like such a great destination. And then the third is just to explore more of Mexico. I'll, I'll say primarily the area where the monarch butterflies come to migrate. I mean, they get over a hundred million butterflies in this small region. And I just couldn't imagine what that's like to see. Awesome. All right, Diane, this has been really amazing to have you on the show. I want you to let folks know how they can get a hold of you, how they can read your stuff, how they can learn more about U.S. tax aid, how they can follow you on social media, all that kind of stuff. Where should people go? Okay, the easiest one is to go to the website, U.S. Tax Aid, U-S-T-A-X-A-I-D.com. Uh, I have blogs that post there on the latest in tax strategies and what's going on. You can sign up to get uh, information and alerts on those. Um, I have a Facebook group, Diane Kennedy's U.S. Tax Group, where I frequently get questions and we have conversation about different things. We, we did a couple of fun things where we watched a video together and then all I had conversation about it, something that was financial. And so there's been some fun things that have happened in that. Uh, my Twitter is Diane Kennedy CPA. And I think that's the primary ones right there. Awesome. We're going to link all that up in one place at the show notes. So you can just go to themaverickshow.com and go to the show notes for this episode and everything that we talked about, all the stuff Diane recommended and all of her contact information will be right there in one place. Diane, thank you so much for being on the show. This was awesome. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on how to avoid the seven biggest mistakes real estate investors are making in today's market? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash avoid mistakes. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash avoid mistakes. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you by cash flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber. To get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals, schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult.